Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, and Janet, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. So check it out. Our guest today is Bradley Howell. Bradley is an MSc student in the Fish Biology and Conservation Lab at the University of Winnipeg. His research focuses on reflex impairment and the physiological status of lake trout following recreational angling. Bradley completed his BSc in Biology and Environmental and Resource Science at Trent University. His previous work includes examining shifts in salmonid abundance in relation to hydropower dams, effects of electrofishing on embryo development, and providing contemporary information on lake trout populations. Welcome to the podcast, Bradley. Thank you so much for having me on, Caitlin. It's great to have you. So starting off relatively easy, what got you interested in the field of fisheries and fisheries research? So it's kind of a long story. I think back when I was a a kid, we spent a lot of time uh, going across Canada and we started off in the East Coast around 2011. Um, We were in Nova Scotia. We went to this marine science kind of touch tank exhibit. And then that's kind of, it put the little thing in my brain that I wanted to be in marine biology. But clearly that's not where I've ended up. I'm in freshwater fisheries. So it kind of, it goes back to uh, when I was in my undergrad, I got a year in Scotland. Uh, We did an academic year abroad program. And while I was there, we worked on salmon and I was like gung-ho from then on. So that's great to hear. So essentially, you've always had your eye on wanting to be in the field of fisheries. Yeah, I would say so. Let's talk about your research journey so far. You completed your undergraduate degree at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, and you mentioned that you participated in a year abroad. Tell us about that. So I started at Trent doing my undergrad. First three years was a biology environmental science split degree. In my third year, Trent kind of promoted this opportunity to go live in another country um, while still going to school. And so I picked to go to Scotland. And so I went to the University of Highlands and Islands, and that's in Inverness, Scotland. That's right up in the Highlands there. They are an interesting school. They have like ties with research that happens kind of across the UK, the UK being much smaller than Canada. Traveling isn't as much of a problem. So they kind of I got linked with a group called AMBER, which is Adaptive Management of Barriers in European Rivers. And so this group are kind of working on uh, research pertaining to the hydropower dam schemes, both in the UK and Europe. And so I worked with a professor called Dr. Lucio Marcello, and we were looking at benthic macroinvertebrate species diversity and richness to kind of explain recent shifts in salmonid abundance after the hydropower dam had gone into the River of Gary. That's super interesting. So did you get to do any field sampling during your year abroad and maybe do some sampling of those macroinvertebrates? So we got out kind of to see the field site there, but right before I was actually slated to go and do the research in the field, COVID hit. And so I was very quickly 
flown back to Ontario, Canada. And obviously for safety reasons, I was living in like a camper trailer on the front lawn of my parents' farm. So while I was in quarantine for those two weeks, I started working on a historical data set provided by other researchers. And we use that to kind of, we'll use that to compare to current estimates that are collected probably in the last couple of years. That research hasn't been published or anything yet. It was just a, a small research project I got to work on. And then that's what led me into the honors thesis project I completed in my fourth year back at Trent. Okay. So is that something that you'll be returning to work on once the contemporary sampling has been finished? It's not something that I'll have a direct hand in, but I'm definitely always kind of keeping my eye out to see what came out of that research. I know that there's a whole case study based on that particular dam. It's called Quioc Dam. And so, yeah, if you can go on their website, there might be some information now or in the future, but it's definitely cool. So in addition to your time in Scotland, you completed an undergraduate thesis under the co-supervision of Dr. Graham Raby and Dr. Chris Wilson in the Integrative Fish Ecology Lab at Trent. How did this opportunity come about? So while I was still abroad in Scotland, I was reaching out to professors back at Trent to try and get a research project lined up for my fourth year. I think once I started with that research project with the invertebrates, I was very, very excited to continue in research. And so I was emailing all these professors saying, you know, I'm a student at Trent, but you can't see me because I'm in another country right now. But trust me, I'll come back and I'll do research in Canada. And so Graham was the one that said, yeah, sure, I'll, t- I'll take you on. And so when I came back, we started, I was doing research with a local hatchery. It's called the Codrington Fish Research Center in Codrington, Ontario, just kind of off the shore of Lake Ontario. And the project there, we were looking at the embryo survivorship of brook trout after parental exposure to pulsed DC electrofishing. So we were taking those eggs once the parents had been shocked and putting them into flow through heath stacks. And then I was looking for things like deformities and and the death of those, those eggs as they progressed through to the fry stage. Has there been any previous research that's looked at the effects of electrofishing on embryo survival and development? There has. I think generally most of the research focuses on kind of parental injuries. There's a lot of, you know, hemorrhaging can happen. There was research that showed that there can be some spinal dislocations and and that sort of thing to the parents. But as far as offspring go, there's there's less research going there and there's kind of opposing Uh, research into whether it does or whether it doesn't. And so this is something that needs to keep being explored. But our research on that, we found that there wasn't an effect of electrofishing on offspring survivorship. But obviously, we only monitored them for a certain amount of time. And so something, you know, if I was to go back and continue that research, I think monitoring those offspring further along up into adulthood, how does the electrofishing affect maybe later stages in life and that kind of thing? That's something that is still left to be explored. And what were some of the deformities that you expected to see with those embryos if they had been affected by the electrofishing? So there's typical deformities. There's something called blue sac disease or spinal problems when they're developing. And those are pretty typical. And so we just saw the regular natural amount of those type of things. Something that was really, really interesting was that we had a three-headed fry, which could just be random chance, but 
it was really incredible. And that was something I actually put on Twitter and it got a whole bunch of attraction. So that's really cool. That was kind of one of my favorite surprises of that project. Yeah. Wow. That's extremely unique. Must have been so cool seeing that. In terms of the field work that went into your undergraduate thesis, were you able to participate or be there for the electrofishing of these fish? So we partnered with the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. And so Dr. Chris Wilson is kind of the head of the Codrington Research Facility. And he allowed some of the MNR staff to come in that had been previously trained on electrofishing. And so they did all of the electrofishing within the stock tanks in the hatchery. And so I was part of the the spawning, the thumb stripping, the manual collection of those gametes, and then the fertilization. And then they put them in the heath stacks and I would go twice a week or so every uh, so often and, you know, collect the dead eggs and tally all of the mortalities that happened on the sheet. So I was I was more involved in the development stage and less on the actual adult exposure. Nice. So after graduating from Trent University, you moved on to graduate school. You are currently a master's student at the University of Winnipeg and are co-supervised by Dr. Caleb Hassler and Dr. Stephen Cook. Tell us about your research. So this is a really cool project that I was lucky to have found. I think it's funny, there was an advert on Twitter promoting this research opportunity at the University of Winnipeg. And originally it was meant to be one project that both looked at catch and release angling, but also contemporary stock population levels and age and death, all of those types of things with each lake. So Manitoba is very prominent in lake trout fishing. The people that live here both in the province, but also out of the province, come in and they do ice fishing and also summer angling. And there is a lake up in uh, the north. It's called Clearwater Lake. It's above the 53rd parallel. So it's pretty far up there. It's just considered northern uh, research. And so my project, we split it into two. So I focused on the catch and release side. And my research partner, his name is Giulio Navaroli. He's also in the same lab as me. He's doing all of the stock assessment stuff. So he's looking at otoliths, basically collecting fish uh, through gill netting and then aging them based on those otoliths and looking at growth rate and that type of thing. My research specifically is looking at catch and release angling, how that affects the behavior and the physiology, as well as post-release activity. So we started the project in January of 2022. We kicked it off with the hardest field work there is, which is winter field work in northern Manitoba. The snow is so thick. The temperatures are like negative 40. We got my pickup truck stuck in the snow getting up there. So it was it was an incredibly difficult but thrilling start to everything. And so we basically we drove up there. We stayed in these cabins on the side of the lake. We would go out. It was probably a 45 minute snowmobile ride out to the sampling site. Once we got there, you know, we would set up our tents and everything. And we were looking at the blood physiology as well as the reflex impairment that we would observe when they were angled. And so it's interesting. In the first sampling period in January, we saw a really, really high mortality rate. And so this was really surprising. We were seeing things like bloating that would indicate barotrauma, but we didn't initially include that in our research aims. And so We ended around uh, January and then went back again in March, and we specifically did kind of a side branch of the original project, looking at the barotrauma sign. So we included a barotrauma assessment 
into the research. And so that would allow us to look at how the depth and things like that were affecting the recovery. It was interesting because we were noticing that the bloating and the mortality seemed to be linked to barrel trauma. And with the the January sampling, we saw that the blood metrics, we looked at cortisol, lactate, glucose, and extracellular and intracellular pH. All of those metrics were either increasing or in the case of pH, decreasing up to six hours. So we were holding fish up to six hours to see if there would be uh, a recovery at some point, but we just saw continual elevated levels. We expect there to be delayed physiological responses during the wintertime because metabolism and things like that are slowed. But it was surprising up to six hours, there was still no signs of physiological recovery. And so that was kind of the major things that came out of that research. Well, that sounds like incredible research. I'm not sure about the minus 40 winter field work. I'm not sure I would be able to do that. So major props to you for doing that and persisting. That's great. What is the importance of this research? I know you mentioned that everything you've done is on Clearwater Lake and there's a lot of anglers that come out to this lake. Is that sort of the angle you're taking with this project or... On top of the recreational anglers that will come to the to the north to fish, they're both you know American, Canadian, international people come to Clearwater Lake. It's it's well known for the trophy lake trout that inhabit the lake. There's kind of two lakes up in the north that are known for giving just massive 46 inches lake trout, and the second one post to Clearwater is called Athapapascow. And so both of those lakes are important for the fishers, but also for the indigenous communities that are surrounding them. And so we're both trying to continue recreational opportunities and bring the economic support to the north, to those northern communities, but also, you know, food security and all of those other things that go with maintaining a healthy population in these heavily promoted lakes. There's a program within Manitoba called the Master Angler Program. And so the the province manages this, but what they do is it allows anglers to submit photos and lengths of their catches. And so this will draw anglers to particular places based on the success that other anglers are having there. And so Clearwater is continually getting posts because it's giving these very large and attractive, they're beautiful, the lake trout that come out of that lake. And you mentioned that your research project was initially supposed to be one that was much larger, but was split into two. Tell us about the other half. So the other half, we was Giulio Navaroli's side of the project. So we worked in partnership through the whole thing. It was incredible to have such a, such a great uh, research partner. He is a little more widespread than me. We did a collection of lakes, both in the southeast and the northwest. I'll just name them off the top of my head here if I can remember them all. We did High Lake, Davidson Lake, George Lake, West Hawk Lake down in the south. The ones in the north were Clearwater Lake and uh, Second Cranberry Lake. And so all of these lakes have lake trout in them. And he would set gill nets within the lakes. We would collect all of the lake trout and other species that were caught. Then we would remove all of the otoliths. Julia would catalog all of them. And so right now he's going through, he's aging all of the otoliths. He's got so, so many to look at on top of the lake trout that we caught. There are so much whitefish otoliths within the lab and they're not going to get covered within the the scope of our master's project. So that's going to be something that gets worked on later. But 
Yeah, so he's looking at growth rate, sex distributions, and that sort of stuff. But he's also doing this really cool thing where he's taking the shape of the otolith, and he's using the morphometrics to try and map out whether there are, we'll say, clusterings of similar ecotypes or genetic populations within it. It's interesting because Clearwater Lake was used to stock lakes both within Manitoba but also outside of the province. And so he's noticing kind of preliminarily that you can see that the morphometrics of the otoliths are similar between lakes that have been historically stocked. Something I want to add to that, basically the reason we're doing the morphometric work is because while we were angling Clearwater Lake specifically, we noticed there were a lot of distinct features of particular lake trout within the lake. So uh, we haven't looked into this deep enough to say, but we have an inkling that there may be ecotypes within that lake, kind of similar to Lake Superior or Lake Huron. They're much bigger and much deeper lakes, and they have things like Cisco wet trout and lean and all of these different submorphs. But Clearwater Lake has very distinct color differences and shape differences in the lake trout. And so Julio was that was kind of what led him into the morphometric work. And I think he's really enjoying it. Nice. And so what are some of the differences that you see between those ecotypes that you mentioned? You talked about color, shape, like what sort of range are you seeing? There's definitely size clusterings. There's the jumbos that you would catch, the trophy lake trout that everybody goes up to get. And so those fish are a lot different than ones that are around 600 millimeters or something like that. The trophy lake trout have really elongated heads. They look old. They often have a big hump on the back of their their head, their neck. They're very deep. And they tend to be this kind of silvery white color. But as you get to the smaller trout, obviously they have smaller heads. They're kind of, their nose are a lot shorter. Their color gets uh, richer. So there's this very steely blue gray that we can see. And we called it snow leopard, but the, the patterning on the side of the trout was very different. It almost looked like leopard prints, which was beautiful. They were they were very, very cool to look at. And in the fall, we did some fall research with my catch and release stuff. And the males that go up and spawn, they get very, very dark, almost black in color. So definitely there's many different spawning reefs within the lake. And so we have an inkling that you could go and try and pick apart and see if there's any differences in those subpopulations if they exist. Has there been any historical sampling on Clearwater Lake? This one's a hard one to answer because there was a research project that happened in the 70s, but we can't find it. So we know there was research that happened there, but we, we me and Julia haven't been able to, to read it. So that's not really something I can answer. You mentioned you did some field work during the fall for your master's. So tell us about that. So that was more related to the catch and release research. So the government of Manitoba has a lake trout spawn camp that happens about every two years. And so they go up to the lake, all the government managers and biologists, those type of people would go up there and they fish for lake trout on the spawning reefs and collect the eggs and milt for them to be brought back to the white shell hatchery, which is down south kind of an hour and a half outside of uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so they use those trout to stock the rest of the province because Clearwater Lake has such a big, healthy population. And so we were brought back up there to do more catch and release work because we wanted to, A, look at the summer angling that was happening there, but also whether or not angling in the fall was affecting the fish as well. I'll start with the summer stuff. We kind of, again, did physiology and behavior. We were fishing from boats this time, obviously no ice fishing. 
We did also notice there was barrel trauma happening. We actually only saw one lake trout that ever displayed. It's called oral organ aversion. And so this is something I should have talked more about earlier, but lake trout are physostomus. And so they have a pneumatic duct that attaches their swim bladder to their esophagus. And so this swim bladder allows them to burp excess air when they're getting drawn from depth. So lake trout, you know, they're 40 feet or so deep. And so they experience kind of a, a quite a range of pressure difference between the surface of the water and the depth in which they're angled. Lake trout typically should be able to burp and expel that excess gas. But as I mentioned, for the winter work, we weren't seeing that working. So in some way it was impaired and, and it's kind of unclear why or how that mechanism was impaired, but that's something that carried over into the summer. And so one of the most recognizable signs of barotrauma that you'll see in rockfish in Alaska, for example, there's quite a bit of research that goes into this. The swim bladder and it's obviously it kind of gets pushed out of the mouth like a balloon. And so it's 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 kind of inverted outwards. And at that point, right, the fish is obviously really prone to mortality. And so there's different ways that people address barotrauma that lots of research has gone into this. There's fizzing, but also I think something that we had been more interested in is called a descending device. Basically, our research wasn't exploring this precisely, but for fish that we wanted to return to depth, we sometimes used a descending device. And so this basically is a weighted device that brings the fish back down. You would clip it onto its lower lip. You would put it back over uh, the side of the boat. It would go back down to depth. There's a very fancy one called the sequelizer descending device, and it's pressure sensing. And so once it reaches a desired depth, it will automatically unclip from that fish. And the fish hopefully will uh, have expelled all that excess pressure or their swim bladder has returned to the typical size and the fish is able to swim off. But we also did research in the fall. They're a lot shallower then, so we didn't see any barotrauma signs or reflex impairment during that time. But we also didn't see any mortality. And so this was kind of good news for us to show that angling could occur kind of parallel to the spawning reef. But this says nothing about the reproductive effects, you know, how it's going to affect spawning behaviors and and that sort of stuff. And so in the summer and fall, we attached a triaxial accelerometer. This is something that built on the Rinter research. We didn't use them um, then, but these were clipped on. We kind of adapted technique from Austin Shore. He's also out of Steve Cook's lab. He used a Velcro strap to put an accelerometer tag around the stomach of the fish. It's kind of positioned on the left side. And so we release the fish with this little triaxial accelerometer tag, which measures the fish movement in three ways, kind of up, down, left, right, forward, backwards. And so we looked at them for 15 minutes and we were seeing what the behaviors were after we released them. And what we noticed was that fish would kind of very rapidly get back down to depth, if if able to, if barotrauma was not prohibiting them from reaching the depth. They would get right back down to where they were angled from, and then they would just kind of sit on the bottom, you know, reduced activity, no pressure or depth changes during that time. And so that kind of indicates that fish have to hang out a little bit after they've been angled to kind of, you know, make sense of what's happened or regain their normal behaviors. So that was an interesting finding as well. That is super interesting. So you mentioned that you use triaxial accelerometers to look at the movement of these fish post-release. How did you get that data? 
the way that it works with the design from Austin Shore is little Velcro strap that has the tag on is attached to a fishing rod uh, via a spool line. And so you kind of, you open the bale of the fishing rod, you let the fish go. It's kind it's attached via the line, but there's no resistance. And so the fish swims around, does whatever it wants for that 14 minute time interval. And then you close the bale on your rod, you give it a slight jerk. And obviously the Velcro kind of unsticks from itself. And so then you have to reel in the triaxial accelerometer tag, click it into your computer and download the data. And that's one of the downsides of triaxial accelerometer tags opposed to acoustic telemetry is that the tag has to be retrieved to get the data off of it. Unlike being broadcast to maybe an underwater receiver or acoustically sensed in that way. So how did you assess barotrauma and reflex impairment? So for these, we use uh, uh, basically an assessment that is composed of five metrics. And so these have been used for previous research um, on salmon and other fishes to to kind of, they are used to predict mortality and the reflexes side of things. Um, these are uh, typical behaviors that are present in unimpaired individuals. And so um, if a fish is impaired, it won't show this particular metric. And so for the reflex impairment, uh, we use a metric called RAMP, which is reflex action mortality predictors. And so uh, there's five of them. So the first one is a tail grab. And so we put uh, the fish kind of in water, we pinch the tail, and we're looking to see the burst swimming response to that caudal peduncle um, grab. The second one is body flex. And so we hold the fish out of the water uh, by the midsection, and we're looking for an attempt of um, escape. The third one is head complex. So that's kind of opening of the jaws in a normal ventilation pattern when they're held out of the water. The fourth one is vestibular ocular response. And so that's tracking of the eye to maintain um, level when rotated horizontally and held out of the water. The fifth one is orientation. And so this is when we place the fish back into the water upside down and we're looking for vertical alignment um, of that fish. Is it able to stay uh, with its dorsal fin pointed upwards and its belly points downwards, or is it floating on its side or its back? For the barotrauma assessment, we use another five, but these are a lot different, um, slightly related to the reflex stuff. So the first one here uh, is oral organ aversion. And so that's gastric herniation into the buccal cavity. And again, it's basically because in lake trout, the esophagus and the swim bladder are connected via a pneumatic duct. It's kind of protruding out of the mouth, inverting outwards that way. The second one is uh, exothalmia, which is bulging eyes or bugging of those eyes protruding outwards from the head. Third one is bloating, and that's overinflation of the midsection. Fourth one is anal organ aversion, so that's a prolapsed anus. And the fifth one is hemorrhaging, and so that's just redness around the mouth, the gills, the fins, the anus, that sort of thing. And so all of these, both the reflex impairment and the barotrauma impairment, can give us uh, kind of a really good uh, guess at how the fish is being impacted by the angling event. So following all of this amazing field work and research that you've done, what are some of the main takeaways from your master's? So something that I want to stress right up front is that we don't need to close down the fishery. Catch and release can continue on this lake. And so the things that we're noticing is that typical best practices should continue to be demonstrated by anglers. So again, like limiting air exposure, fight time, you know, take as few pictures as you can, that sort of stuff. Keep them wet, put them back in the water as soon as you can. Those are all going to promote uh, survivorship and kind of reduce the amount of impairment that fish are going to get. 
I think for lake trout, we found that they were a lot more susceptible than we would have thought or what has previously been shown for barrel trauma. And so the use of descending devices would really greatly benefit anglers and the fish. And so just bringing, you know, either a bot or homemade descending device with you when you go angling, using that to release the fish if it's demonstrating signs of bloating or barrel trauma, it, all of these things are going to really kind of keep those big fish alive. And this is kind of something that, of course, anglers are practicing in other types of fisheries like musky angling. And so trophy lake trout are no different. Awesome. All of your research sounds so great. And so now that you're starting to wrap up your master's, do you have any plans or ideas for what you want to do next? Yeah. So I have a PhD lined up at Trent University. I'm going to work with Graham Raby and Steve Cook once again. That project is really exciting. It'll be doing something I've never worked on before. The company in Nova Sea out of Nova Scotia, they've created a new V3D predation tag. And so this tag is really interesting because can surgically implant it into prey species. It has a polymer filling within the tag. And so once that prey fish is consumed by a predator and the fish starts to be digested in the stomach, the polymer coating uh, will get depleted and the tag will switch its code number. And so you can see spatially and temporally where predation is occurring and link that to things like the time of year or like behavioral syndromes. And we're going to put tags both within the predators and the predation tags in the prey. So we'll be able to track predators and prey in real time. And that is going to be just kind of groundbreaking. I'm very, very excited to work on that going forward. Oh, I'm sure. Are there any particular fish species on the predator side that you're wanting to tag or that you're aiming for? So we're working on both pike and bass. We're going to look at the, those as the predators and the prey species are going to be bluegill and yellow perch. Where is all this research going to be taking place? So we're going to be working on Lindsay Lake, which is at Queen's University Biological Station. We'll definitely have to have you on the podcast sometime in the future to talk about all of your PhD research once you get started. As a fun fact, I was Bradley's TA during his undergraduate degree at Trent in his fourth year. Well, Bradley, now the tough part of the interview is over and we are down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that I ask each of the guests that come on the show. We always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? So it has always been the brook trout. There's no other champion in my mind. I think after working on lake trout, you know, I may be leaning a little towards lake trout, but definitely chars as a group. I think there's nothing better. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? So this is a cool one. So while we were in Manitoba, we had this opportunity while we were doing Giulio Navaroli's population work to fly out into the wilderness zone of Whiteshell Provincial Park. So in the southeast of Manitoba, the Whiteshell Park has this zoning where there's no motorized craft allowed. So that's no ATV, snowmobiles, fishing with motors on your boats and that sort of stuff. And so we took a bush plane into that lake. I had never been on a bush plane before, so that was just so exciting. We landed on the lake. There's an island in the middle of the lake. It's called Manterio Lake. And this wilderness cabin is completely run by uh, solar panels on the roof. And so it's like this little just single spot of civilization in the middle of this 
void of wilderness. And so it had a wood-fired sauna and it, we got to cook our meals like on the side of the lake. And so that was, it was like a dream. It's my favorite memory for sure. What is your dream job slash location? Definitely research. I think I'm fairly flexible at this point. I think I could be academics. I could be non-governmental organization. I could work for some place like Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, in Canada. Definitely, I love Ontario. That's where I'm from. But also British Columbia would be really interesting to do work with the Pacific salmon there. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? So this is a very interesting question. I think going off of the research that I did in Manitoba, the winter research was especially challenging. And there isn't a lot of long-term monitoring during the winter just because of the difficulty that freezing temperatures brings to equipment. And so if I was to let my brain run wild and design this totally crazy expensive project, I think, you know, having like a giant tent in the middle of a lake and then having open water within that tent and then you put something like we built these limno corrals to use for the research we were meaning to put them during the summer period and put the accelerometer tag on that lake trout and then put it in the limno corral and monitor it for up to 48 hours but those limno corrals weren't ready in time and so we didn't end up using them for that research but you could definitely take that limno corral which is basically composed of a floating ring and side meshing and it can go down you know 15 meters deep. And so you could put that limno corral within that tent that I mentioned on the ice and, you know, put those fish in there, monitor them for for longer periods with the entire scope of the water column. And so that would be something that you could take catch and release data and extend it into into longer time frames, maybe up to 24 hours. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I would say just that there's so much diversity in freshwater fisheries and not a lot of people take that into consideration. And there's a lot of focus on, you know, these beautiful faraway places with all these amazing different species. But within Canada, within North America, the freshwater fisheries are, are just as diverse and beautiful. Bradley, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? I'm on Twitter. I'm a big fan of Twitter. My username is Brad Howell. So B-R-A-D-H-O-W-E-L-L with an extra L. So Brad Howell with three L's. Also, I have a website. It's BradleyEHowell.com. And yeah, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. I'd love to chat with you. And if you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, freshwater fisheries are diverse and beautiful.